It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means. It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. This week, starring special guest star, Mr. Roman Chris Murphy. Yeah, baby. <laughs> uh, thank you, fake band. Thank you, fake audience, and welcome to the show. Awesome. How are I love you, being here, of course. <laughs> I love always. having you. Yeah, he's another one of those guests where I could just leave the building, and it would be fine. <laughs> but I'd have less fun. Yeah. I was getting a little worried, because he just showed up like five minutes ago. I was like, oh, I might be answering his questions for him. Um... So, for those of you who are regulars of the show, you know that uh, Ronan has, I don't know, been on the show probably five, six, seven times now. Um, he's a very uh, much beloved speaker at the Road Rally every year, uh, which is coming up a little more than a week, November 3rd through the 6th here in Los Angeles. Uh, and what are you going to do at the Road Rally this year? Uh, I'm doing a couple things. Um, one is just talking... I've got one which we're calling something like the world is your recording studio because there's so many situations where people are recording outside of traditional environments whether mm -hmm. that's their living room or something i'm really into is just actually remote recording like outdoors and in cool spaces really yeah so you don't worry about trains going by or birds tweeting it's a trade-off <laughs> and so um but i've been doing a lot more of it even on some bigger productions wow yeah so i mean just really really recording like out in the middle of squares in Europe and finding cool attics and old buildings and you know places that inspire creativity. Are you just and, dragging along a, a laptop and you know like minimal gear to do it? Yeah, or? I mean sometimes I mean I'm actually flying off to Cuba a, like right after the road rally. Wow. To uh, and we're bringing a laptop and an Apogee Duet two channel interface and a couple microphones, things like that. So and Apo sometimes it's Apogee's going to be at the rally. This oh, year. Apogee's awesome. Yeah. I mean I use tons of their stuff. Yeah. And uh, and sometimes it's even just like a little handheld Zoom recorder because yeah. it's kind of remarkably remarkable how not bad their mics and stuff. <laughs> That's are. a ringing endorsement of <laughs> ever. No, I mean one. it's again it's it's one of those things where you know I've got tens of thousands of dollars of high end mics and preamps and things like that, and they sound better than the Zoom. Yeah, hands down. But the Zoom doesn't suck. And if I'm out there and can get some exciting music or inspired performance or something by being able to run around with a Zoom recorder, I will take that amazing performance over yeah. something about a little more linearity in the low end of the mic or whatever thing we're talking about when we geek out on things. Yeah, we've talked about that a bunch of times. Performance is always yeah. the, the the better default. Yeah, and, and also the other thing which I'm doing in the theater on uh, Sunday morning is basically just about recording hacks, kind of some of the stuff we're talking about, probably going to talk about today. Oh, then let's we're, not talk about it because we yeah. don't want to give it away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there's just a lot of simple things you can do that can re make really big improvements in your recording that don't cost a lot of money. It's yeah. really about just approaching things smart and different uh, and undoing a lot of bad habits. I, I, I worry that people go online and uh, they read... They read what other people talk about and they take it as gospel and think, yeah. that's the way I've got to do it. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. Well, and, I you know, the truth is, it's your, your, your work. You can do anything you want. But, but a lot of times when you are looking for inspiration or how you might approach your own work, I mean, a big thing is, like, if you see something talked about over and over and over by people who do this every day for a living, right. it's like, well, that's a strong thing to consider. Not to say it's the only way, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of crazy stuff out there and 
fun fringe ideas, which are, you know, fun and exciting and entertaining. But when it gets down to nuts and bolts of trying to make great recordings, yeah, a lot of it's just using the same techniques that, you know, the people working with Benny Goodman used and Led Zeppelin and Metallica and whatever you're, Britney Spears, whatever you're into. There's a lot of things you see coming up over and over again by, you know, the men and women who just do this day in and day out. I'm glad you mentioned women in that sentence because uh, I've talked about this on the show before and I'm going to talk about it a little bit at the Road Rally, but I'm always quite amazed how the ratio of men to women uh, who do home recording or studio recording, mm-hmm. uh, a lot more men than women, and I've always wondered why. And I'm not going to, you know, we don't need to <laughs> debate the issue from a societal uh, standpoint, but one of the things I'm going to definitely address at this year's Red Rally is encouraging more women that seem to be a little tech-phobic or something. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's funny, um, I would say the ladies are equal to or greater than men with graphic design using computers, Mm -hmm. but when it comes to recording, they're not. And I know that friends of mine that work at places like Guitar Center or uh, Recording Magazine, I know their readership is heavily skewed towards men. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, you really... There's no excuse for anybody of any gender. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, uh, I won't get into that either, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Any, anybody can learn this stuff. And and the same thing applies to men who are tech-phobic as well, certainly. Uh-huh. It's just, it's not that hard. You just need to do it often enough that you fail and learn from your mistakes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I probably run into more men who naturally want to geek out on stuff. Why is that? I don't Why know. Why do we have that geek gene? <laughs> I have no idea. But that said, when I, when you do find women who are, um, you know, really into it with the same passion as men, I mean, they're as good or better. It's yeah. just since, you know, some of the programs I do with the Recording Boot Camp, I think, you know, probably the best student I ever had in terms of who could just hear stuff. Like, you know, there's things where I'll do a little EQ trick and go, hey, what do you guys, what mm-hmm. did you hear? And most people kind of give me blank looks. And this woman has almost got no fun because she's like, oh, yeah, it looked like you reduced the low mids. And like she got everything. The <laughs> but best... she's getting spitballed from the people behind yeah. her because she got every answer. Well, that was the thing. She was like the best ears of any student I'd ever had. Wow. And, you know, I, did, I do this thing in West Virginia every year, this uh, mountain recording retreat. And I had yeah. a woman on there who, you know, everybody was playing their stuff and doing critiques. And just some of the most outstanding stuff was from you know, the woman in the group who sort of felt, oh, yeah. I don't know, should I play my stuff? And she was amazing. So, so. Uh, yeah, I want to strongly encourage more women to get the geek gene because yeah. this is a lot of fun. Um, okay, so uh, let's jump right into some questions. Uh, okay, the power of really studying reference track tracks, plural, to model your own work. Yeah. Um, so, this Talk to me about, you know, uh, self-help people always say, find somebody who's accomplished what you accomplished and yeah. model them. This is the same thing just in the world of audio and yeah, production. Yeah, it's finding that, but also giving yourself a frame of reference. And and this is something, you know, I could, um, yeah. if you ever thought about hiring me to consult, this will save you money. You won't have to. I'll tell you, like, the most important thing I tell people. And it's something, like, even in the road rally, when I get a chance to listen to people's music production bars, um, one of the big things is you you hear this and not even to say if the work is good or bad but you kind of ask the person did you listen to anything else right that was successful in this genre and it's amazing how often the answer is no and not even to say something like 
you know, oh, that's cool or that's not cool. But especially something like taxi, where so much of it is maybe listing centric. Right. Like we're looking for something that needs to fit into, you know, an action scene of, you know, a, a film. Right. And then okay. they'll submit like a, you know, a moody, introspective, acoustic uh, yeah. guitar song. Yeah. But even <laughs> things like that, like even just getting into geeky aspects, like how much mid-range, mm -hmm. you know, how much of the instrumentation like is right in the range where explosions and punches go. And if you went and listened to great cues, like what would Hans Zimmer do, you know, in an action scene? And, uh, or what would anybody you like? And you'll notice like, wow, they actually left this whole range of instruments out and put all the energy here. Or wow, listen how there's so minimal counterpoint like I actually just did some consulting with somebody who's a member of Taxi, and he's like, he's like, I'm just getting rejected. <laughs> you know, why am I? Why is all my stuff coming back? I work hard on it, and you know, I listen to his stuff, and he's obviously really talented guy, and it was just this one thing. It's what like, was he doing wrong? Part of it was really complex counterpoint stuff in things that he was pitching for a film and TV. So you had, he was creating complex counterpoint. Yeah. Okay. And so these are things that are pitched for libraries which had these really cool lines, but like three interwiving lines with really big, fat, thick sounds, which again, if I was maybe just wanting to chill and listen to an album, I would really dig. Right. But these were specifically, these are listings for film and television, where you've got that pesky dialogue and sound effects and things like that. Yeah. So the thing was, he was a really talented guy who was approaching things from an album perspective versus, let's look at what is great film score like? You know, how dense is it? How, how complex are the lines or not the lines? This may be one of the simple, most important things people should yeah. learn at, or will and can learn at the Road Rally, mm -hmm. which is simplification. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it, they're not looking, music supervisors aren't sitting at their desk going, hmm, let me find the best composer today. They're mm -hmm. sitting at their desk going, let me find the best piece of music for the scene today. Yeah, exactly. And, and what you're talking about is exactly right. The, yeah. it, it's simple wins more frequently than not. Yeah, and, and even something like outside of like film TV placement, like song pitches. Hey, you're trying to develop something that a new artist in the style of Katy Perry or something, mm -hmm. fantastic. And then they'll have these sort of rhythms where like boom, ba -da -ba, got like really yeah. super syncopated with all sorts of variation, which again, you're talking to a guy who did a bunch of records with King Crimson. So I have nothing against, you know, complicated drum parts, but that just doesn't represent at all what what is successful in that genre of music. Right. And so it's really if you listen to your stuff and a mixing is a big, huge part of it, too. Like I'll listen to these people's mixes and going. They're like, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to have that radio sound. And there's usually just giant glaring things that are just completely off. Yeah. You know, the vocal is way too loud or way too low or tons of reverb. So why do you think it is that people can't hear that? Because you and I have talked about this before and I've seen it my entire career. It's like the roadmap is there. Yeah. All you have to do is listen. Um, but it, it doesn't seem apparent or obvious to the people whose work isn't lining up and getting that sheen or that radio sound well i think people make the big mistake of just going in and just not going out to reference things because humans are amazing we will we will calibrate as normal whatever we're sort of exposed to for a long time mm -hmm. becomes normal i mean you know people survive prisoner of war camps 
and it becomes their normal. You know, not to say that this is anything close to that, but like if you're, I don't know, if you're, <laughs> if you're, if you're mixing a track for like ten hours all day, it's like oh, and you think my God, this is great. Those drums have huge impact. The vocals sweet and sits right. You know, go over and listen to some other successful things in the genre, and I still do it too. Again, I've I've worked on hundreds and hundreds of albums. And I still, some days I go in and I can just sit down and nail it. But there's a lot of days where I'm like, ah, you know, if I'm feeling a little bit unsure, which is like every other day or yeah. or, or more, um, you know, I've got a whole collection of stuff on my hard drive that I know really, really well. And so if I've been working on something and my mind's kind of fuzzy, I'll go back and just listen. I might only need like four seconds of each one. But just uh, so I can go, oh, yeah, this is calibration. This is standard. So absolutely you know, a big thing like, you know, where you mix the symbols. That's a big thing. Yeah. Like, people will tend to undermix or overmix. And I'm guilty of that myself. And then I can just go like take a couple seconds, listen to some other records and go, oh, that's where I am in relationship to all this other stuff. I don't know if I've told you this. I, I probably mentioned it on the show before, but my very first week in the industry, I was working at Criteria Studios in Miami. And I walked by the mastering room, which mm-hmm. is pretty tiny and very hot because it actually had a lot of tubes in it. And there were probably six people in there, and they were all doing this. And they were listening to, uh, in the city, uh, is that the name? Stevie Wonder song from mm-hmm. Inner Visions. Um, and I walked in there, kind of snuck around the corner, and I'm watching these guys just all deadly silent listening. And I found out what they were doing is only listening to the bass on those monitors mm-hmm. in the mastering room because they were the best monitors in the place. And they all were talking about the bass sound, mm-hmm. just taking it down to just the bass sound. Yeah. So if that's what the best guys in the industry are doing, that's what everybody should be doing. Yeah. Yeah, but it is amazing. And one thing I'll throw in on this, too, yeah. is we naturally have a tendency when we go and listen to something else to think about what ours doesn't have enough of, like, oh, that's brighter, or that's mm-hmm. got punch your kick drum. The thing that I always teach everybody who ever studies with me is try and listen to what yours has too much of, because that's usually the problem. Are you talking about arrangement-wise, or too much EQ, or too much reverb, or, both. or all? Okay. Kind of both, but usually I'm thinking specifically now about like mixing things. It's usually like, oh my gosh, mine doesn't sound as bright and as exciting as that other one. So you go and start turning up all the high end and mm-hmm. boosting stuff when maybe really, maybe the organ is just way too loud or the bass is way too loud. You compare and go, wow, yeah, my stuff has way more bass or way more organ. It's incredible how if you just go pull down the organ, all of a sudden you're like, boom, way closer mm-hmm. to being where you wanted to be. So when I listen to references, whether it's kind of EQ things or have I mixed the snare drum loud enough, First thing I'm listening for is what have I put too much of in mine? And usually if you listen and really listen to a bunch of other references and go, wow, mine has way more bass or way more 2K on the vocal or something like that than all the others. It's amazing how much if you go find what you have too much of and pull that out, all of a sudden your your record just leaps yeah. up like huge giant steps. I want to go back to cymbals for a minute. Um they're kind of the bastard stepchild of records, uh, and they are one of the more problematic instruments, I believe. And nowadays, so many drums are out of the box, and they sound amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just got uh, the folks at TuneTracks sent me uh, Easy Drummer 2. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Be still my heart. Yep. Really, really great sounding stuff. And of course, you want to open up the room mic um, because it sounds better. Mm-hmm. And 
so you've got these very pristine, beautiful um, overheads, and then you open up the room mic, and now you've got phase cancellation because you've got stuff bouncing off of walls coming into the stereo room mic that's mm -hmm. competing with the stereo mics over the kit. Yep. Is there anything other than the obvious hitting the mono button to see how much cancellation you've got because things will disappear in mono? Mm -hmm. um, what do you do when you hear that, you know, kind of phasey, washy sound happening? Phasey washy is sort of the bane of my existence, and yeah. I'm probably obsessed about it more than others. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm giving some stiff competition on that, my friend. Um, but you know, part of that is again when we're talking about real drums versus these sort of in the box sort of synthetic solutions. Yeah, I'd approach it a little bit differently. Yeah, let's talk um, about the in the box variety because I, mean, I would say probably 75% of people now use drums mm -hmm. in a box. So. Yeah, I mean one of the things you can do is experiment with even just time displacement, displacement, sort of delaying out, and we're not talking a lot. We're talking a couple milliseconds, you know, on the room mics. Okay. And so you make up for the time the, well, that it takes the sound to get from point A to point actually, B. And actually, especially with something I didn't work on, I'm actually usually increasing it. I might be increasing it. Why? Because um, in one of the things that will go and change the phase relationships, and it's really important to understand with a lot of people is that when you've recorded something with more than one mic that are separated in space, there's nothing you can do to fix that. Right. There, anybody who says, oh yeah, there's this trick where you can fix the phase, they're just making stuff up. <laughs> um, because you can't. What you can do is screw stuff up in a different way that you like better and serves your vision okay. better. That's a good way to so explain. So one of those things, like if you've got phase issues with sort of closer mics versus room mics, you know, you can experiment with delaying out those room mics because that will change the phase relationships to maybe into a range that doesn't bother you as much or is it maybe even pleasing. Sometimes cool stuff might happen to the low mids in a way. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things I'll do is you know experiment with the idea of pushing those back. That's big boy stuff. You're now talking, you know, stereo delay, uh, you know, of a couple of milliseconds, yeah. which nobody can really hear. Mm -hmm. uh, you certainly couldn't hear it on its own. You'd have, and and you couldn't hear two milliseconds in reference. All you're going to hear is the difference in the phasing. Correct. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. And you know, to get sort of geeky, is you know, uh, one millisecond is roughly one foot in time. So it's sort of like you're pushing the room mics back a foot each time. Right. And uh, or about uh, three milliseconds is three meters for anyone over in Europe or Australia doing this or one meter. It's about three milliseconds. So, again, you start to mess up the phase in other ways that might be more pleasing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you can do, too, also when you have those issues is really just find the range where the phase is the most obnoxious and reduce it. So, okay. of course, we're going to do that with EQ, which is just another way to mess up phase. <laughs> so it gets a little geeky right there. But, you know, using really big, wide EQs, you know, it's usually going to be in your mids and your low mids where things sound really wacky. Well, maybe just go ahead and pull those out. What um, about recording the drums just like uh, laying down the track with just kick, snare, hi-hat and going back and doing a separate pass um, using MIDI to trigger uh, the toms and the cymbals. Will, it, will that sound okay? Will it sound natural or will, well, because there is no bleed from, you know, the, the cymbals into the room mics? Um, well, again, that would just, yes, I mean, it, it, it's, there's probably well, more to that question. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I, and again, I, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around how would I do this with a real human being hitting. I, I've done that, and it just didn't sound that right. Yeah. And I ended up uh, opening up the room mics because yeah. I needed to add that yeah. washiness back in there. Yeah. It just didn't sound yeah. right. There was um, Queens of the Stone Age, uh, Songs for the Deaf, I think is it. Dave Grohl plays drums. And they actually recorded the drums and the cymbals in separate passes, mm -hmm. which is a little easier when you have one of the best rock drummers in the world at your disposal. But they did that so that they could have those, you know, that interaction of, you know, the more control over the cymbal yeah. sounds versus the tom sounds. Bunches used to do that. The, you know, they would just make loops, yeah. actual tape loops, and then they would yeah. go back and overdub the toms yeah. and the cymbals and but stuff. One thing you can do too, again, working with things like these Easy Drummer program drums is if you want to create that sense of bigness, um, one of the things you can do is you know pull back the amount of room mics you use, and then, again, getting a little geeky here, but that's why we're doing this, is you can actually split off your overheads, especially if they've got the other drums in them as an overhead, and just smash the bejesus out of that with compression, <laughs> like really high ratio, really fast releases. Yeah. Uh, and that will give you a sense of bigness and room that is more phase accurate because I can actually you know I've got really good compressors and hardware and in the box and I can actually get a pair of overheads from a fairly small room to sound like you recorded them in a basketball arena but that's you you've got you know 30 years of experience under your belt yeah but um, I started somewhere yeah and again with you know pulling up really aggressive smashed compression you mm -hmm. know the great thing is if you're working at home doesn't cost you anything to, you know, right. you know, put the kid to bed and, you know, go into your studio and smash drum overheads for a few hours and see what happens. Absolutely. Make mistakes, learn fast, you know, uh, fail often. That's what I'm <laughs> trying to say. Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, avoiding fake sounding virtual instruments. Is it usually better uh, to have a unique synth or you're saying it is usually better to have a fake synth sound? Yes. Uh, a unique synth sound rather than yeah. doing a piss poor job of faking strings. So this is what I'm getting at. And again, I see this from a lot of the consulting work and stuff I do is somebody who's a great composer will sort of send something where you just hear this, you know, obviously like fake cello sound. And yeah. one of the things people need to realize if they're trying to sort of compete up with the big dogs is for virtual strings, the bar is crazy high right now. I mean, really amazing. And is it a function of dollars spent on, on the sample library, or is it a function of something else? It's both. I mean, it's a combination of, you know, great sample libraries, plural, mm -hmm. uh, and also really great arrangement and knowing your sample libraries, really knowing, oh, this is what the violas, you know, bring out of this sample library. So you might take your violas from this one, you know, your celli from this one, and uh, oh, but the pizzicato celli from this other one. <laughs> what about somebody who, because uh, we're talking about doing things inexpensively mm -hmm. and conserving dollars, what about somebody who doesn't have a couple grand to spend and mm -hmm. let's say maybe has a three to five hundred dollar library? Mm -hmm. What are some hacks that they can do to get mm -hmm. the best out of that relatively inexpensive but yeah. pretty darn good sounding well, library? And that's kind of where this is going is, you know, again, the bar is so high, just you know, made for TV movies. Yeah. with what sounds borderline like it was an orchestra recorded at Abbey Road. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you come in and compete head-to-head -head with that, you're really, really at a disadvantage. But I think people are much better advantage rather than saying, well, let me see if I can get this cheap fake cello <laughs> to sound kind of a little less crummy. Mm -hmm. If they sort of work to 
find something that's more unique. Like process that cello in a way that's not natural so, sounding. Or, so it's obvious. Yeah, or blend with a really cool synth patch or filter that in a cool way where all of a sudden this is, wow, that's a really cool sound. It gets your melodic you know, compositional ideas across. But, you know, you have it in a way where like, wow, that is just a really cool synth sound. Because, again, the bar is really high now. And, you know, 15 years ago, you could get away with the cello. That went, <laughs> right. But you can't now. I mean, j again, just low budget made for TV movies have really good sounding virtual strings now. I don't want people to be discouraged, though, because no. uh, I, I hear a lot of stuff that, that's in a lot of the better music mm -hmm. libraries yep. out there. And look, nobody is going to sound as good as one of Hans Zimmer's guys that right. is probably taking samples from their own library yeah, uh -huh. and mixing it, yeah. you know, with mm -hmm. whatever they're using out of the box. Uh, and I've heard incredible stuff from some of our um, members who've been doing this for a long time. But going back to the person who doesn't have a lot of budget and yep. coming up with that unique sound that supplants the cello that they can't get to be as good as the real deal. Mm -hmm. um, how do they know when they've crossed too far over the line and now what they've done sounds just plain stupid or silly? Wow. If we, if we could figure that one out. Because <laughs> that, that's a danger too. It, no, it really is. Um, but even just thinking about things like Again, texturing things differently, putting an interesting sort of delay on it, something that gives it its own unique flair where it feels like the statement you made was that it was a statement you were making, not that you just fell short. Right. And of course, I'm, I'm saying, you know, I'm not saying don't go for it. Like with even if you just have the free sample library that came with Logic or Digital Performer, mm -hmm. you know, go for it. Try and get that stuff to sound amazing. And truth is, the more you know that, you'll realize that there's certain things you can do, like string pads and swells, that sound amazing. Right. And then you might find that, like, oh, my God, every time we pull that clarinet, it just sounds like a Casio, you know, toy box. But the oboe. Mm -hmm. So really, no, getting to know your library really, really well. Great point. Don't assume that it all sounds bad because one thing sounds bad. Yeah, and That's also, great, yeah, and great. really paying attention to that too, like, you know, understanding the instrument. Of course, the more you understand arrangement, composition, you understand that, you know, oh yeah, this is, you know, ha this instrument can play more, is normally played more legato right. than the way your sample set is. And an oboist wouldn't play something in this octave. No wonder it sounds like crap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but... But that's the thing, it just remember that the bar is high and, you know, and I hear a lot of the, you know, the like even in, within Taxi, I hear what the best of Taxi is. It's like, oh, yeah. So don't just kind of assume that because you did it, it's, it's good enough. Like really like struggle like to understand that, you know, because these things from Taxi listings are, are next to people sometimes on par with Hans Zimmer. That might get thrown into a, a yeah. TV or a film where... Yep, you're coming back to back with a cue from Hans Zimmer. Or, we just had a couple of uh, Taxi member songs make it onto the mix stage for a big budget uh, TV show. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a third thing, it was two Taxi member pieces, songs, and a third person who wasn't a Taxi member who actually got it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you never know. Yeah. Who, you know. Absolutely. This was on the mix stage with, you know, the executive producer making the final decision for a big TV show. Yeah. And, you know, to spin off of that, something we talked about, maybe, you know, one of the things I'd mentioned before is, you know, when you're trying to get stuff sounding great, 
you know, sometimes, especially listing things, it might be like, oh God, it's it's 9 p.m. and I need to deliver something right, by 8 a.m. Yeah. That is what it is. But things where you have more time or you're building up your catalog, you know, we just mentioned like clarinets and oboes, or things like that. Really scratch your head to see if you have access to a clarinet or an oboe player. Mm -hmm. I mean, people make that huge mistake that they like must do everything myself. Where again, if the whole goal of you working on this is just the joy of doing everything yourself, that's completely valid. But if the goal of this is to make outstanding work, man, you want to pull in all the best resources you can. You like, said the, the 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 W word, work. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, the, we're so used to the um, instant gratification that technology has brought to us on so many other levels now. Mm -hmm. that I think people expect that I'm going to buy a $500 library and it's yeah. going to sound really good out of the yeah. box. But if you take two people, one who has invested the time to learn how to use it mm -hmm. and somebody who hasn't, the guy who's invested a lot is going to sound much better than the person who yeah. hasn't uh, using yeah. the same stuff. And, you know, I'm a producer, but, you know, I'm also a guitar player. I mean, I've, you know, I've toured around the country and things like that. I hire guitar players a lot. Yeah. Because I'm always trying to find the best people I can to to be on my productions. Well, let's talk about that. Um, that's got to be a money-saving hack right there because uh, I'm sure that you've experienced this more times than you want to think about, but you bring in a guitar player who's not really right for the job mm -hmm. because they're more of a chicken picking person yep. and you've got a metal part but that's the only person you could get that day you could spend six hours on a part that somebody else could have gotten in 20 minutes exactly absolutely so talk about that in a more general way than yeah. just the guitar person yeah because I mean, I'm always when I'm producing records I'm I'm working like a casting director in a way mm -hmm. um, like there's some musicians who I know I know their work and love them as people but I might not bring them onto a record for four years because like, oh, this guy is so good, but he's not the guy. Right. And so, yeah, it's always about that. Because even you, when you really dial it in, you go, oh, yeah, this drummer naturally starts playing real behind the beat. Mm -hmm. And I need something that's going to feel more youthful and energetic. So I'm going to get some young guy who maybe doesn't even have the same chops as the other guy, but he's got the right feel. And you know what? It's easier to solve that problem today than it ever has been because you guys, especially our taxi members, are so interconnected on a yeah. global basis. There's such a community that people used to be able to say there's nobody in Peoria that can play like that. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter now. <laughs> yep. Is there somebody with a Wi-Fi, you know, internet yeah. connection in, you know, in Istanbul who yeah, maybe is? Yeah, and you know them because you've heard their work on the taxi form. I could frame this shot better. There we go. Um, so, but one of the things on that too is a lot of people make the mistake again doing this music stuff. It's what I do. It's how I pay my rent, pay my insurance, all that kind of stuff. But it's amazing how many super talented people in the world, especially players, where they've moved on, where playing the instrument isn't the focus of their life. Maybe they, right. you know, maybe they're police officers or something else, and but still have a passion for it. You want to get as many of those people in your life as you can. Because, you know, if you say, hey, I don't have a lot of money, but, you know, I can give you 20 bucks and six pack of really good imported beer. Can you come over and play some guitar? You've just maybe made their week. Right. They're going to be bragging about doing it, you know, yeah. all the whole next week at work. And you bring get people with incredible passion and things like that. And some people, you know, you'll find people every once in a while who are like, wow, that guy was one of the best guitarists in the state before he became a police officer. And he's still a great guitar player. Things like that. So finding those people, 
and trade favors with them. Absolutely. Because you may be a, a great keyboardist. Yeah. And you know, it's not like you're trying to screw anybody by not paying them for the gig. Call them up and say, look, I've got no budget. Um, the next time you need a keyboard person, yeah. call me. Uh, but I need you because you're the best guy for this guitar part. They'll be flattered and they'll probably have a great time. And the one thing too is you get talented people looking at your music from a different perspective, mm -hmm. which is just mind-blowing like <clears throat> how often somebody could come in and just look at it and go I'm hearing that lead voice and you're doing it in the piano did you ever think about bringing that out as a feature melody here let me just play the lead voice and all of a sudden it's like <gasps> you know or and you and I both know that they're more <laughs> likely to say oh that's a good thought coming from that other player than they are from the producer because you <laughs> represent an authority figure maybe yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. there's a certain amount of resistance like your yeah. parents saying you know drive carefully yeah, yeah right mom <laughs> yeah and I've got uh, you know a lot of times I work with great musicians or I'll see actually there's a great great example uh, I was working on this record and we had an idea for a, a Trump uh, trombone player to come in and do that wah 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 with yeah. the plunger on there and so we brought him in we paid him he was a pr good professional and we said oh yeah can you do that sort of well and he just his face just went why and he said okay let's make a deal I've got a different idea can we try that ah. and then after that I will do whatever you want that's fair and he played this trumpet solo that was so beautiful, or trombone solo that was so pure and beautiful and lyrical. It's like one of the highlights of the whole album. The plunger got flushed. The plunger got flushed. <laughs> so again, it's amazing how many people, when you get cool, creative people together, yeah. you know, just how just everything can lift up and really go new directions. I, I love that feeling when you bring the right person in or put the right band together for a rhythm track. Yep. And they light up when they see each other in the room, and as soon as they run it down, magic happens. Yeah. That's my favorite thing about this. And as producer, you get to take all the credit. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and as the producer, you get all the blame when it doesn't work. Um, okay, so we talked about that. Uh, let's, let's go back to Drums for Man and talk about simplifying drums. Yeah. Um, you touched on this a little bit, but I think that especially for people who are programming drums that are not drummers, they tend to want to make the drums really busy because they can. This mm -hmm. is their chance to express him or herself yeah. with all these great tools that are out there. But my personal experience is if you listen to many of the greatest records, the drum parts are, are incredibly simple. Incredibly simple. And that's actually one of the things that I'm going to be so we can chat about it now, but you know, and my thing on Sunday morning is showing some of those ideas of, you know, just simple doom ga doom ga doom ga doom ga. You're sitting programming your stuff and going, Oh, this is so boring, it's gonna sound so cheap and dumb and amateur. It's like doom ga doom doom ga doom doom ga doom doom ga doom doom ga living after midnight. Rock and there's all these songs that are just doom ga doom ga doom ga and it's amazing and that truth is in in real life most of the time that drummer who came in and played the really fancy busy stuff would get fired and not brought back the next day and again i've worked i work with lots of tons of progressive rock and things like that and when it's appropriate that's fantastic right but so many things busy drum parts regardless of what you think about them whether that's the most awesome thing in the world or the dumbest thing in the world really busy tricky drum parts just are not representative 
of the overwhelming majority of successful music. And if you lay the drum track down and everything else is built on top of it, you spend a lot of that valuable time we're trying to save by fixing things because you're working, you know, you're starting out with a bad underlayment, mm -hmm. if you will, yeah. you know, and, and it's just hard to fix and, it. And the huge mistake people do is they make these really busy drum parts that actually don't have any relationship to the overall groove and rhythm of the song. Mm -hmm. So, you you know, you have a guitar part, and all of a sudden you have, and it just totally fights and conflicts with what's maybe the great, you know, hook of the tune. So let's give these guys some advice that when they're engineering and producing their own thing, and they've listened to what you've said about bringing in the right people for the right parts and all that stuff. And now they've got somebody who is so incredibly good, and let's make this applicable to the drum part, uh, that the drummer is showing off. He's, this is what I've got, and he's too busy. How do you as a producer, uh, not you as a producer, uh -huh. because you've got all these years of experience under your belt, how can those guys watching the show tame that drummer? and get him or her to lay down a more simple and appropriate part? Um, I mean, that's a tough one. Because it's intimidating. It's, it is really intimidating. Um, the great thing is you rarely have this, the better the drummer you work with, the less likelihood that they're going to come in and try and show off. It's the not so great drummer who's going to try and show off all their chops. Right. Um, but really what you have to do is just kind of not don't talk about it in a way of like dude enough with that stop that <laughs> but talking about it in a way of like hey here's the big here's you're not the, getting paid by the beat <laughs> yeah but you know here's the big picture of what we're going for versus like oh man don't do that weird stuff it's kind of kind of say hey this is kind of what we're going for i want the guitars to sort of do this and the bass so what i'm going to need from the drums is sort of them to do this role in this big picture and so you can work on it and there's some people who just will never get that, and you just have to tell them to pack their drums up. One that always worked for me was, you've got one of the best pockets of any drummer mm -hmm. I've ever worked with, yep. and I want to show it off. Yeah. So cut down yeah. what you're doing so that they can really feel how good you are. Uh -huh. <laughs> and they go, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good one. It's not a lie. It's true. It's, you know, yeah. It's a kind of positive manipulation, yeah. if you will. But, you know, is, there, there's some drummers and they're the easiest to beat up on because we build so much of the foundation around them but it's it's almost like a Tourette's kind of thing mm -hmm. to do fancy things and again this is just you know I'm, I'm lucky enough to work with some of the greatest drummers in the world like lots of guys from the cover of Modern Drummer and things like that and this problem never exists with them you know when I'm working you know even an artist you know like I've worked on a few things with like Terry Bozio, one of the great virtuoso chops yeah. guys in the world. And when we're working on a tune that's about groove, he strips it way down and plays groove and supports. And to me, actually, personally, I find that his sense of groove, the most exciting thing about him as a player. The fact yeah. that he can play orchestra by himself, and groovy, but his natural feel of groove is, to me, my favorite thing about him. It's the best quality in any drummer, yeah, I believe. But eventually, I mean, there's some people, like, you know, some things you can't get away with, like if you're producing a band or things like that. But there's certain musicians you'll come in with where I, I will just, you know, cut bait. Yeah. I'll just, you know, and I always pay people for their time. If I said I'm going to pay you X dollars for the day, you're going to get X dollars for the day, but... 
you know, I'll, I'll send them home before lunch. It's and, tough when you're doing the trade, you know, and you yeah. feel like you're indebted to them because they showed up, you know. Yeah. And, <laughs> okay, not only do I want you to do this for free, but I'm going to tell you <laughs> how you shouldn't do it. That's always a tough one. Uh, let's talk about mapping out the arrangement prior to recording. Mm. Uh, because, again, we're talking, the, the heart of this show is saving money. Yes. So... It breaks my heart when I see people go into a studio and they're making arrangement decisions. You're always going to be calling some audibles mm -hmm. because yeah. until you've got all the pieces really down, you don't know. But I've seen people that really, really just, it's so obvious that they should have done their homework before they ever walked in. Yeah. Are, are you a fan of that concept as well? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, um, go and for it. On a couple of different levels. I mean, one is, yeah, just like the arrangement. Know how many how many bars you play for the bridge. Mm -hmm. Simple things as simple as that, you should definitely know. And one thing I do when I'm like working with a band, if we have time to work in pre-production, which is kind of my favorite part. I've even had bands where like, listen, if you can only hire me for a bit, mm -hmm. let's do pre-production and you can get somebody else to do the engineering. Let's yeah. get this stuff right. But it's amazing how often, like especially a band who's you know plays loud gigs and stuff, where you're in the studio and they go, wow, what what are you playing there? Uh, uh, F minor seven. He's like, I've been playing F major for the last year, <laughs> and they never really yeah. kind of even noticed. Or what are you doing rhythmically? So one of the things I like to do is, you know, especially if I have a chance to work with a band over time, I'll temporarily break up the band, mm -hmm. and as their homework assignments, I'll tell the drummer and bass player to go in and learn the entire album just playing by themselves. Makes sense. Because in, in the loud thing where the guitar players are blasting away and the keyboard players wailing, maybe they don't even get a chance to hear that, oh, you're doing you're swinging the 16th notes there a little bit. Mm -hmm. Okay. And get that. And then do the same thing. Take the guitar player and the keyboard player and have them run through the songs together at low volumes. It's a chance to go, oh, I never realized our chords were completely clashing there. Yeah. And try and do those things so you don't, you're not sitting around in a studio yeah. You know, having that discussion. It goes back to my earlier yeah. point, uh, or you and I talked about this before we went on air, uh, the vocal. Mm -hmm. I've seen people spend hours, entire evenings working on a lead vocal, mm -hmm. and the whole time I'm sitting there with my face buried in my hands thinking, you could have just taken home bass, drums, and a rhythm guitar and worked most of this vocal stuff out, yeah. not at 150 bucks an hour in yeah. the studio. Mm -hmm. I don't know why people yeah. do that. Yeah, and one thing, going, going back to the arrangement thing, and in terms of getting it right and mapping it out, yeah. is one of the things that the great big budget productions have is many times dynamic arrangement. Because mm -hmm. the way modern records sound today, they actually don't have dynamics. You know, new modern recordings have virtually no dynamics right. of any merit, but they have you create a sense of dynamics through dramatic arrangements. Yeah, guitars roaring in and disappearing, keyboard riffs coming in and disappearing. We put this in our listings for something uh, like uh, I love to call them uh, stupid little instrumental cues. Mm -hmm. Could be something as simple as a swampy acoustic guitar cue with a, a dobro on it and maybe a second acoustic part. Mm -hmm. We actually write that in the listings. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, come right into the heart of the, of the uh, motif, um, skip the intro, 
and then uh, add and subtract instrumentation to create a sense of forward movement and dynamics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a perfect example is just study virtually any Radiohead record for yeah. the last twenty years. Like you know, OK Computer, which is just this classic of modern rock. It just sounds like, oh my God, there's this stuff going on all the time. And it's, it's really not. It's very simple. It's very dynamic. I mean, it's rarely more than like a quartet or maybe a quintet going on. But what they do is, again, big, roaring, weird guitar doing this funky riff. And then a really killer, like, manipulated Fender Rhodes comes in. But when that comes in, that guitar completely goes away. Yep. And then whoosh, they're constantly sort of swapping again, around like that. Again, that's pre-production stuff that should happen before they get in the studio if you want to save money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how are we doing on time? Okay, so we'll do like another 20 minutes and open it up to Q&A. Um, actually, you know what? I've got to pull something out of the garbage to show you that's very relevant. <laughs> Okay, well, Michael's digging through the garbage. We have any questions? I just threw this out about a half an hour before <laughs> we got here. This is from 1994 or 5. Um, it's exactly what we're talking about. These were my notes. I was producing a song called Mercy Blue for a band called Martin's Dam. And I took the song and just mapped it out and just made little notes about uh, talking about dynamic arrangement, what should be where, mm -hmm. before we ever sat down and recorded. <laughs> and now here it is, you know, 20 some years later and I threw it away. Awesome. <laughs> I just remembered something about the drum groove thing. I want to yeah. say back up for like a minute. Okay. Um, one of the things that we talked a lot about drum grooves that support the song. Uh, one of the tricks I strongly recommend people doing everything themselves, a lot of people will write a song and then they'll scroll through on their easy drummer oh country library country you know country drums rock drums etc uh, and then lay that down and start building up from there mm -hmm. and that's something I generally find to be a mistake because if you've hung out and written a song on guitar or keyboards it's got its own groove and vibe yeah what I recommend people do is like just record a chunk of that real quick so you've got it when it feels good and just uh. put that giant grin on your face record a chunk of that by itself and then, and then go in and find the tempo. Audition I mean, the drums. I've got things. smartphone apps that you can you get the tempo, and then try and play that just to yeah. just to the click, and then go in and find a drum groove that supports that amazing thing you just wrote. Because so many people go and pull up, and and so many times it has no relationship to that killer groove. So they end up writing around it. Yeah. yeah. And Makes so, sense? Yeah, so go the other way. Find out what's the most special thing about the tune and build up from there. Um, how do you feel uh, as far as a, a money-saving, time-saving hack? That If you're going to a pro studio, uh, find somebody that has their own place of business that doesn't travel around to rooms so much unless they travel around to the same three. My feeling is I'd want somebody, not unlike yourself, that has their own facility because you know what your presets are. You already know that if you've got a fairly legato, uh, you know, Fender P bass on a, a ballad, you know what the settings are and you're going to be 90% on it, right? Rather than being in somebody else's room and having to learn the gear and the room as you go. Well, as a guy who travels around the world working on records in lots of different studios. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, well, aren't you faster in your own room? A bit, yeah. Um, okay. But sometimes my rooms, I'm even in, in planning stage on a record right now with a with an artist where I'm even saying, let's put some extra money in the budget not to use my room 
because the kind of record we're making, a different mm. room would actually suit it better. Okay. Things like that. So um, the one thing I'll say, and... Uh, you don't have to agree with me. No. And uh, <laughs> the thing is, there is something valid to sort of speed and things like that. But I would say the most important thing where you're looking to bring in a producer or an engineer or something like that, find the person you trust, thinks respects you and respects their music, and you trust and respect their expertise. How do you know? That's like saying I'm going out on the second date with a guy or girl I just met. You don't know yet. You yeah. know, we've all been through the dating producer thing where somebody talks a great game and they play their most impressive work and you think, oh yeah, I want a record that's that good, but then you get in the studio and they're yeah. overbearing. Well, one thing, when they jerk. play you their most impressive work, make sure that they weren't making the coffee for that album. Yeah. I mean, I know people who were sort of, <laughs> you know, the Pro Tools operator, and not to say that it's not a valid part of the picture, right. but I've, you know, here's their demo reel for their production reel, and it opens up with this giant, awesome sounding major label record, and they were the guy, you know, you know, press and record and creating the new tracks and things like that. And yeah. people go, oh, he can do that. And now you can find it. Well, I was going to say you can use the internet to find yeah. out anything, but there are a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of credits that don't show up and a lot of credits that do show up where I think people yeah. just... Yeah, and credits that are wrong and things yeah. like that. So, I mean, that's a really tough one, but, you know, really kind of do dil diligence, talk to some other people and things like that. Like, if somebody's talking about making a record with me, I have no problem with them calling up other people who worked with me, see if I'm a good guy or, uh, you know, not. <laughs> and, 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 well, you would certainly pass the good guy test, but you may not be the right guy for every kind of record. That's absolutely like, true. As, I mean, as long as I've known you, I have no idea if you would be any good on an EDM record, for mm -hmm. instance. Uh, you might be, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I would tend to look at the overall history of that person. Yeah. Uh, I went through a period of my career where I was known as the acoustic guy. guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. After I worked with Neil Young, nobody in the rock world would touch me for a while. So yeah. I had to like only go out and find rock bands to work with for well, a year that to was me. That was me after doing so much progressive rock for years. It's like Neil Young. Yeah, guy, right? I mean, Neil Young is the reason I'm a musician. And wow. you know, these singer-songwriters that I would love to work with wouldn't be interested in me yeah. because, oh, God, he's you King Crimson guy and things like that. How did you move past it? Because um, you do get branded. You do get branded. I, I started turning, if I was given a choice of like, here's a prog rock gig that pays really well, mm -hmm. and here's a singer-songwriter that I might pay the rent with, I'd do the singer-songwriter record. Yeah. So, you know, it was tough, like, you know, even turning down some gigs, like, I'm not the right guy for that. But I really actively worked to go and get very non-progressive rock gigs. And... and, and you need to, good thing you did, because mm -hmm. there's not a lot of that. We we did just have a prog rock listing, though, through nice. Taxi about two or yeah. three weeks ago. But, I mean, really the big thing is you you don't need to jump right into working with a producer, you know, especially a band's album or something like that, or an artist's album. Spend time to sort of feel each other out, um, musically speaking, of course, and, uh, you know, and just really get a sense and talk through what would the process and how would you do this. And But one challenge I always have with that is that, Somebody would say like, oh, so how would, you, how would you do drums on my record? Or how would you do X on my record? And I'm just thinking, I have no idea. Yeah. We haven't hung out and talked about our favorite records and where you're trying to go as an artist and things like that. And, uh, you know, yeah. especially like, what mic would you use to record my voice? I'm like, I don't know. I've never recorded you before. And we haven't talked a about... A silver one or a black one. Exactly. We haven't <laughs> talked about, again, your vision of who you want to be as an artist. Yeah. And the kind of record you want to make. And 
things like that. One thing I will say kind of on that, and this is really more to do with like bands and artists and that versus, you know, people creating kind of libraries and stuff, mm -hmm. you know, about going out and hiring somebody else. Really look at the logistics and the finances of whether DIY is your best bet. Because I'm, it's kind of heartbreaking when I see these people made their records, they just spent a year and a half and they spent all this money to build their own studio and do all of this. And then the record they come out with is just like, wow, it's just not very good. And again, if, if this replaces bass fishing in your life, where it's just, this is just about the joy of being in the studio, working with my buddies, that's awesome. But artists trying to really develop as a career, hear these records and go literally, in four days, I could have blown this out of the water. Yeah, and I and it's not being cocky saying I'm a god, but it's like that I've done almost nothing but this stuff right. for a few it's decades. What you do for a living. And I could have brought you these folks into the studio in four days, and after four days, left them with something that blows what they did out of the water. One of the things that frustrates taxi members, I would say probably ten to fifteen percent of them, is they hire somebody like you. Um, they make a real record, you know, mm -hmm. just high quality product. Um, and then they submit it to, they pitch it over and over again to taxi listings, trying mm -hmm. to put square pegs very often in round yeah. holes. Mm -hmm. And the screener will write back, this is a really good song start. However, the arrangement's a little strange on it and it really could use a bridge. And, and these people just get in, infuriated. It's like, dude, do you realize who I had working on this record uh -huh. with me? Yeah. Uh, and I, I've spent my whole budget and I've gone to disc makers and I've pressed up 500 copies of it. Yep. I can't change it now. Yeah. So do you have any good advice uh, so that people can work with somebody of your experience and quality, but leave it open-ended enough that when they submit it to Taxi, that they can take the root of what you've created for them as the genesis for taking it to the next level when they get feedback? Yeah. I mean... I mean, yes and no, but one thing you could do is if you're thinking of this kind of strategy, just sit down with that producer or that engineer and say, this is my dilemma. This is what I'm trying to do. I don't know that they would foresee the dilemma. Mm -hmm. um, but even part of that saying, you know, hey, I'm, I'm looking for building blocks. I might need to develop this further and things like that. Because mm -hmm. something like that, you know, I could, I could deliver stems. <laughs> Right, like drum stems and guitar stems. So they even decided, you know, that melody, the hook wasn't strong enough. They could right. come back to me or buy a decent mic and recut the hook themselves in their own studio. Bring in another vocalist. Uh, yeah, yeah, all kinds of, of things they could do yeah. to take the root of what you know, you've yeah. created. I think it's, maybe this is something really important, which I didn't even think about us discussing. But with all of this, with the new way stuff is made these days, mm -hmm. whatever that is, <laughs> it'll be different, you know, by the time we're done with this. But, you know, all of these resources, just like having a resource of an oboe player uh, or a string arranger or things like that, engineers and producers are resources, too. So you could find somebody say, hey, I'm developing this material. I'm not so good at recording drums and things like that. And I want to build stuff. Is, is there ways that we can work together? Like, could I come in and cut drums and bass and guitars with you? And then it makes sense. I'm later. surprised more people don't yeah. think about doing that. But and I think they're they're so anxious to get the finished product. People 
the, you know, for as much and as people chuckle about CDs, I think there are a lot of people that still like to see their work on a CD because mm -hmm. it looks just like what's in the bin at the record store, and, and there's, I gotta it's very say, validating. I gotta say, you know, I've worked on hundreds of albums, and it's still validating for me. Yeah, there's just something about like, uh, you know, this physical thing yeah. showing up that's like, yep, I did this. It's complete. Even like I just finished this thing. It's a big video game out called Mafia Three. Uh, just came out this week, and I I recorded mixed all the music for the original score, and it's an amazing thing. And you know they're running ads for it in the Major League Baseball playoffs and stuff like that. But you know, and the thing came out online. You know the the score release. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, great. I'm super happy about this. But you know, I just got the vinyl in the mail. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, the other day it's like, yeah, now it's the real thing. There's wow. Just, there's just something about that physical so, thing. They for, actually did vinyl for a video game score. They did, yeah. So. And That's it, kind of cool. Yeah, it's kind of a blues and rock, a lot, a lot of big blues and rock influence on it. We tracked it in Nashville and with amazing kind of Nashville musicians. Do you have a favorite room in Nashville? I just, I worked out of Ocean Way Studio B, oh. which, um, beautiful room, but A is a beautiful room too, but I didn't work there. A is the church room, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the thing I loved about it is the management of that place is just off the charts amazing. Yeah. You know, they, they know how to take care of people. The gear worked awesome. So, you know, when you bounce around to a lot of rooms, to go into a room that's comfortable, good client services, and all the gear works. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was fantastic. Nothing better than dialing on the intercom, you know, <laughs> on the phone, hitting zero, maintenance, please. And the yeah. guy's there with a flashlight and a tweaker in 30 seconds. Very yeah. satisfying. Yeah. Um, I had one more that I really wanted to ask you about before we move on to questions. Uh, I've lost it. Oh, mono versus stereo. Yes. Uh, I get this question all the time. Um, when Shirelli's on the show, he gets it. Mm -hmm. I know that one of the people who wrote in for today's show asked the question. Uh, let's talk about the stereo versus mono thing from uh, the perspective of you've got a mono feed coming out of a synth. I mm -hmm. mean, a stereo feed coming out of a synth yep. um, or or doubling, you know. Yeah. Let, let's go instrument by instrument, you know, for typical uh, stereo things like acoustic guitar or Almost keyboard. never. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you almost, just record a mono. Almost yeah. never stereo. Right. Uh, unless it's just an acoustic guitar record, instrumental. I might right. be inclined to Anto do it. Antonio Carlos Joe Beam, go stereo. <laughs> but w the short of this, and we could have easily spent the entire day and the next three times, <laughs> next three times I'm on talking <laughs> yeah. about this one issue. But it boils down to this simple thing. If you want to make big, wide, exciting stereo mixes, use as many mono elements as possible. If you want your mix to sound like really wobbly, weak mono, use lots of stereo elements. Why do you think so many synth uh, patches come out of the box in stereo? Because synth patches are designed to sound good when you're uh, Audition? auditioning them. But part of that is, you know, there's very few things that are actually stereo. Like, again, we've talked about clarinets and oboes. Mm -hmm. They are mono instruments. And, uh, you know, there are very few things, you know, a violin is a mono, for the most part, a mono instrument in any way that we've traditionally heard it. Mm -hmm. Even in reality, is drums are actually a fairly mono instrument if you really consider what would it sound like sitting in front of this band watching them play a song. Yeah. You'd have a bunch of mono instruments unless the sound guy or gal turned it into something else. So one of the tricks 
that a lot of like pro mixers know is that we always say, you know, one of our best tools is the mute button. Mm -hmm. So when stuff shows up to me, I'm trying to take as many things as possible and convert those to mono. So depending on what it is, sometimes you can throw away the left or the right side. Sometimes you can collapse to mono, take stereo, things like that. Sometimes you can't because of bad phase problems. But I'm trying to get as many things mono as possible. So I want, you know, when I'm mixing some kind of production, whether it's, again, a video game score or a rock record, I'm usually looking at maybe one or two elements total being in stereo. And what would those be? Drum overheads, I like. I like to have drums in stereo. <laughs> We've gone full circle now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just in my, my own personal bias, I enjoy stereo drums on many records. Um, and usually, like, if there's a dominant kind of piano part, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I'll, and if there's space for it in the arrangement, sometimes it's nice to have that in stereo. Uh, or some kind of synth thing where the stereoness of it is really key to the character of it. Um, would a good example of that be a phased classic Fender Rhodes in a really sparse song? Um, yes, uh -huh. I mean, uh, especially the tremolo, of, yeah, like yeah. the classic tremolo, one, one, one. Yeah. Again, that is very key component. Or, you know, if there's the space for it, like a Hammond B3 organ mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. a Leslie really going back and forth. But... Yeah, I, I couldn't make myself do a Leslie in mono. <laughs> That's one of the instruments that I will always default to yeah. stereo on. And I usually do too, but, you know, I'll, I'll always actually print them on, you know, have them on separate tracks. Yeah. Because all of a sudden you've got that beautiful Leslie back and forth, but then you end up with three other guitars going on. And there's just no real estate for that. So when I always had a rule of thumb, which was if the part was a legato part and it was primary to the mix, that I would leave it stereo. Mm -hmm. If they were doing little stabs, yep. go mono. Yeah, uh -huh. That's because a... there's no point in having them flying it... back and forth. If anything, yeah. it's a distraction. Exactly. So yeah, but usually it's that thing where if a guitar, you know, and people don't realize that if you record an acoustic guitar really well with one mic it has that sense of bigness and spaciousness that people are thinking of in stereo on a guitar. Because when you say mic, mic the guitar in stereo, you're not thinking, oh, one string squeaks to come out of the left speaker and strums to come out of the right speaker. You want a sense of spaciousness. By the way, at the Road Rally, you're going to see a guitar that I bet you haven't recorded yet, and you're going to be very intrigued by it. It's called uh, Batson is the name of the company. As a matter of fact, there's one sitting over there behind that keyboard. Cool. Um, the sound holes on the top of the guitar staring oh, wow. up at your chin. Huh. And the reason that Corey Batson, the, the luthier that designed this, it, it makes perfect sense. The, the neck and the bridge are cantilevered so that they don't put any pressure on the face of the guitar. Hmm. And the way that the, the architecture of the supports uh, it's made so the front of the guitar really resonates oh, nice. outward yeah cool and it's a little strange when you first play it that stuff is coming up it sounds almost like an ovation guitar uh -huh. coming up at you but what I heard sitting in front of it was like okay I can't wait to record one nice. in the studio so um, they're actually going to have a Batson open mic. B-A-T-S-O-N? Yeah. Cool. Um, they're going to have an open mic on the mezzanine at the top of the escalator where anybody can walk up and play, and we'll probably have Batson guitars and the other open mics. But just uh -huh. go check them out because you'll oh, nice. geek yeah. out on it. Nice. It's it, a totally different kind of guitar, and I, yep. I would love to play with one in the studio. Uh, how are we doing on time? we got about 27 minutes to go. Okay, question. 
will there be a taxi TV next Monday? You know, I hadn't really thought about it until about 10 minutes before we started today's show, and I'm going to put my money on no, there won't be a taxi t TV next Monday because I will be taking care of last-minute details for the road rally. Um, let's see. You run it in it mono then? Well, one thing while we scroll through that, one thing I will yeah. say, and this is one of the huge, huge important things um, about one of the reasons why we don't go as much mono, I mean, don't go mm -hmm. as stereo. stereo. Yeah. Same reason we don't go with as many elements as we can. Mm -hmm. um, one of the mistakes people make is they want to pile all this cool stuff on top of their mix and then wonder why it doesn't have the impact and excitement of major label things. Well, most major label stuff is actually pretty simple or successful indie stuff. And one of the things people don't realize is every time you pile a new element onto your, your mix, everything else usually gets a little bit worse. Mm -hmm. So, and you, I'm sure we've all dealt with that. You, whether you pull up a cool virtual synth sound or something and you push it up and go, oh my God, this is amazing. You're so excited for people to hear it. And then you add a guitar and then you add another synth and then a drum loop and then a something or another. And then all of a sudden, why doesn't that sound as cool as it used to? Because every element you piled on top actually starts to rob character, punch, and impact yeah. from that first primary thing. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And again, listen to great things. Like Again, listen to a Radiohead record, how few things are going on simultaneously. Listen to Michael Jackson's Thriller album. Great to, example. To see how simple those arrangements are. Listen to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, how ridiculously simple and sparse virtually every bar of that album is. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have the, oh my God, that David Gilmore guitar sound. It's because we didn't pile eight <laughs> other David Gilmore guitars on top of it. And we yeah. didn't pile three synth pads on top of that. We just let it shine. And for when you're working on this on a budget, it's the more tracks you pile on, the more you need advanced ninja skills to mix it. And if you're using the mute button, which people should use, I completely agree with you, they should use the mute button more often. Uh -huh. But you do have to think in advance about the parts because mm -hmm. sometimes the parts have a ring out or something and you yeah. can't just mute it when uh -huh. you want to. Yep. Um, and you may be able to mute it um, a bar into the next section because uh -huh. the ring out has taken place, but you're just creating more work for yourself later. Mm -hmm. So think like a mute button when you're laying yeah. down the parts. Yeah, but even now, again, one of the things about all this challenge is like you talk about easy drummer um which you can just again pulling i'm not a big preset guy but pull up a drum preset with rock pattern number two pull that up it's like that's actually pretty darn good yeah and you can then pull up some kind of you know clavinet sample or something cool like that and go that's actually pretty good <laughs> and then you know whether you plug in a bass or do something virtual and then maybe sparkle on one other thing in a voice yeah if you've made cool choices about sounds, you can virtually mix that record by pushing up the faders. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, pan things out, push up the faders. Absolutely. And have things really good, because again, you know, I'm, I'm a, I enjoy recording acoustic instruments a lot, but I also enjoy synth stuff. And again, so much of what we have easy access to sounds pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing about, you know, this whole thing of things not sounding pro and big budget isn't so much that people have don't have access to the big budget stuff. It's that they are so proactive in doing things that make their stuff sound small budget. Yeah. 
So all of this, because again, listen to so many great pop songs. And can you think of a good example of something that you've heard in the last year, a particular record that is a shining example of uh, economy of parts? Adele's record is Comic Book. I mean, it's actually <laughs> comic how yeah. insanely simple, simple that is. record is. And that's because her voice is the star of the record. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. Too many layers on that, and you're not going to You know, but even stuff. things like I did at my, you know, a couple of things I'm remembering pulling up from last year at the rally, the thing I did in the theater, you know, we went, pulled up the Adele thing. It's like, man, it's if you just looked at it academically, it's a snooze fest. You know, like Taylor Swift's, you know, Shake It Off. It's yeah. like... You're kidding me. Like you would you would sit down and do that and think there's no way I could ever show this to people and pretend to be a professional because it's so knucklehead, simple and sparse and I didn't put anything into it. You know, and of course I'm being sarcastic because that's yeah. a great production, just like the Adele records are. Yeah, they may have spent a lot of time, you know, uh, trimming the fat before they ever set foot in the studio. But there's almost nothing going on. Again, go go listen to Taylor Swift's "Shake It Off" yeah. and just laugh at how stupidly simple that is, and then laugh at yourself that you're half dancing while you're listening to it. Oh, I thought I saw a Motown question, but I didn't. Okay, um, okay another question. Uh... Rona, his comment about which compression we use hit hit tons. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of excessive compression, and that's not unique to me. That's just unique to people who make successful records, mm -hmm. for the most part. <laughs> da -da -da. Funk is about the commitment to the groove. Less yep. is definitely more. Yeah, you know what? Listen to any great funk record, and the horn parts are surgical mm -hmm. in the way that they're written. Yep. Uh, you could have the Tower of Power horns come in to a session if you don't write surgically and strategically uh, well thought out parts. The Tower of Power horn guys are going to mess up your record because <laughs> it's just going to be a horn record. Yeah, and again with funk too, it's like you know the whole thing with the classic funk is just how stuff doesn't change. You find your spot within that architecture and you sit there. You know, it's one of those things. James Brown apparently, you know, if the guitar player played a little extra riff or something, he'd mm. get dock his pay. It's like, no, your job is go dink, 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 until I'm done dancing around. Then I got to be the assistant engineer on one night or two nights of uh, James Brown laying down lead vocals. Uh -huh. And do you know that he had a wooden dance floor laid out uh, oh. at the microphone awesome. and brought in a whole entourage of people so that he could perform to an That's audience awesome. and danced his way through the performance. <laughs> If I remember correctly, I think he did with a handheld 58. That's awesome. Yeah, just because that's how he got the best performance. Yeah, and one of the things you'll know talking about groove and everything is it's amazing. Nothing is going to make your recording sound better and more big budget than the parts being in the pocket. Yeah. You know, things when a band locks into a groove, um, it just it just sounds like you spent another $50,000 on the record. Yeah, like my best friend does um, records a lot of orchestras for big budget films and stuff like that. And he even says it's always kind of amazing, like you know when they do the sound check, you know everything's like. Eh, who's your best friend? John Rod. Uh, don't know. Him. I and, thought you were gonna say Dennis Sands, who's an old uh, friend of mine from like <laughs> forty years ago. It does the same thing. But uh, it's that thing where you get the sounds up and they're like, yeah, the orchestra sounds okay, and then there's the downbeat or the second one, and the band's sort of settled in, got in their place, 
And it just sounds like you sw- pulled out all the cheap mic preamps and mm-hmm. put in the super expensive mic preamps. Yeah. And it's the same thing, you know, with, you know, a drummer and a bass player. You know, if the band, if the guys are playing tight together, it'll sound like, you know, you went from the cheap preamps on your interface to that Neve console. Yeah. And I'm not exaggerating. Well, don't same, have to tell you that. The same thing could be said <laughs> yeah. for instruments. Uh, yeah. I, I've seen a great drummer sit down at a really, really crappy drum kit and make it sound amazing yeah. because their touch was so amazing and i've seen people sit down you know in front of an eight thousand dollar drum kit and make it sound like crap yeah i had that experience i was working on a live album with chucha valdez y grupo Irikere from cuba oh yeah i work with them all the time but you know like the greatest cuban jazz musicians in the world oh man that and uh, great and i you know i sat down behind the drum set to check it out and hit the toms i was like oh god this is gonna be bad and you know and we have a lot of language yeah and like how do i explain <laughs> that the tuning on these toms just blows and so anyway he came down and sat down and started playing and it's like oh my god this is like dream drum sound and again just great because musicians know how to play they have the touch and respond to the instrument wow and that makes that's the thing if you ever want to like come off like a super badass engineer work with great musicians yeah <laughs> Uh, next question. Uh, how we do? We're okay on time. Mm-hmm. Uh, need to commiserate the bar. No, we're not talking about that right now. <laughs> um, okay, any questions? You guys are all chatting about hooking up at the road rally. Um, Let's see. Effect. 35 millisecond track delay plus pan apart with different volume. It sounds like somebody talking about making something stereo out of mono. Be careful if that's what you're talking about, because 35 seconds, will you'll actually start to hear that rhythmically once you start getting past it. Milliseconds, you mean? Yeah. Or second. Okay. Um, <laughs> here's a question. Uh, what's a basic formula that's competitive for final mastering of a track? Are there any typical effects you could bring up volume and get a dynamic sound compared to your final mix? Huh? I don't really understand this question. Do you? Uh, what do you print at? Um, I, I just don't understand the question. Is there a way yeah. to simplify it? So basically, I think he's asking for general stuff. One is, you know, there's with with mastering, you know, in terms of RMS levels, that really depends on the vision of the producer and the style of music. Uh, RMS levels could be anywhere between like minus 15 uh, to, you know, on something like a jazz record to something like minus seven, minus six on some extreme metal records. So they're all over the map, but you know, really you should be able, to, if you're doing your own DIY mastering, you should be able to get pretty darn close with subtractive EQ and a good brick wall limiter. And uh, I hate mastering presets. Really? Uh, they, well, the thing about mastering presets is all they can tell you is how something registers on a graph, but they can't tell you how something feels. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is, you and I singing on the same track, or, or whatever, singing the same song, and then somebody mastering it, what will be maybe the most pleasing and most offensive frequencies in my voice will be different from yours, which will be completely different from a female vocal singing on that. Yeah. And truth is, even the same artist singing in a different key, where you go and Yeah, the same song even played in a different key. It affects everything because it affects the whole curve. Yeah, so this whole idea of like, oh, here's the rock or here's the pop thing. The idea of that, I just, and I understand that people have to do it, you know, to make things loud. But the whole idea of 
automated mastering, things like that, it just bothers me. And, and only part of that is because I make so much of my living mastering. But um, but the reality is, you know, it just doesn't, it's not mastering. It's just slamming some loudness stuff and usually a smiley face EQ. Because really mastering is going in and finding where's that unique frequency which is creating problems in one voice. Which yeah. will be different on a different singer, even that same singer in a different key even different times of the day yeah you know this the um a singer that's singing at 10 30 in the morning is way yeah. different at, than 10 30 at night yeah so if you are going to do your diy mastering stuff um really get a good digital brick wall limiter for loudness and get a good clean subtractive eq even the one that comes free with pro tools is really good for that work and try to get your stuff sounding as close to major label as you can with just those two things and I'd strongly discourage you using any kind of spatializer, widerizer, any of those kinds of things, because they actually create problems that you may not be aware of that could really hurt the translation of how that sounds on multiple systems. I'm going to scoop back up. We missed like 30 questions that just Ooh. went flying by. Uh, yeah. Which hair products? Let's not talk about oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you advocate well-mixed acoustic percussion for broadcast versus drum machines? Oh, let's see. What's that one? Uh, right there. Do you advocate well-mixed acoustic percussion for broadcast versus drum machines? Oh, yeah. Um, if I can sort of answer that, I'm a huge fan of acoustic percussion. Mm -hmm. Like massive, massive, massive fan of it. I actually, I'm not a good percussionist, but I've actually played on a bunch of albums I've mixed that they've just needed shakers or tambourines on. Um, but one of the things, especially if you're programming drums, I strongly recommend trying to get a decent percussionist to play some shakers and tambourines on the record because it's amazing how much that simple thing can just make stuff sound so much more big and full of life and professional. There is a gentleman, one of our members, and uh, I can't remember the name of his company because I don't have my rally stuff. I cleaned it off the desk. <laughs> uh, let me see. Okay. Anyway, Natural Acoustics Lab. Uh, mm -hmm. Al DeSico, one of our members, um, who's well known with other members as an accordionist of oh, cool. the highest degree, he's just awesome. But he builds these um, shakers that are from certain kinds of, they're the best sounding shakers you will ever hear nice. in your life. And he'll be back again at the Road Rally this Oh, year. nice. Cool. I got to check those out. Bring a couple hundred bucks with you to buy the whole set. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Just trust me. <laughs> You'll be blown yeah. away. Oh, and it's important, this thing that we're just talking about, is I'm talking about acoustic shakers and percussion played by a human being. Because um, one is, and sometimes when you're programming things, things can sound so rigid and a little closed and fake. And that natural thing of pushing mm -hmm. and pulling a little bit and sound bouncing a room getting picked up by a microphone, it's amazing how much just one element can take it from, oh, yeah. that's pretty good drum program to to, oh, who played drums on your record? Mm -hmm. It's, again, shakers, I've got a whole closet full of, you know, shelves full of, like, I probably have 15 different shakers, seven different cowbells, you know. You're about to have more, trust me. Exactly. Bring, bring cash to the rally. Yeah, but uh, it's, one of the, it's one of the best investments you can make for making your stuff sound more pro. Question, we have many unanswered vocal questions. Okay. Okay. Um, Will Shirelli be at the rally with mics for sale again? Yes. Um, remember Ronan being in favor of subtractive EQ? Oh, yes. yes. Uh, Not many asking that questions about vocals. Michael, best budget 
reverb, best effects. Uh, I'm having a hard time understanding some of these questions. Ooh, best budget they're, reverb. They're in short, shorthand. Um, I actually, reverb I just got turned on to yeah. um, by um, Mick Gazowski who did the Daft Punk record, yeah. but also Celine Dion, and one of the greatest vocal... I think the Daft Punk... Mixers in the world. Best records of the last and, 20 years. Probably. And um, he turned me on to Valhalla Plate Reverb. It's a plug-in. Yeah. It's 50 bucks, and it's probably the reverb I use most in the box. I've got outboard stuff as well, but for yeah. in the box, it's 50 bucks Valhalla Plate. Okay. They make other reverbs which are okay, but the plate one? Yeah. Because actually this big Mafia 3 video game thing I did, we, we tracked in two different rooms, and one room had three EMT plate reverbs. Okay. So I was actually printing those to track in real time, you know, separate reverb tracks. And the next room we tracked in was a super cool studio, House of Blues, but they didn't even have a good digital reverb there. Mm. And so this, when I had to mix the final score, I'd have half the recordings were done with all these beautiful EMT plates and the others, nothing. And I had mixed the record in the box, the whole project in the box because of you know the routing and things we had to do. And I just used almost nothing but this Valhalla plate reverb. And it's pretty darn close and lived. You don't you don't go from one track to another and go, oh, this must be a track where they didn't have the the EMTs. Wow. But it's like fifty bucks. So. I don't even know if people know what EMTs are anymore. Yeah, giant big plates. Way to steal plates on springs. Yep. <laughs> uh, Phil Spector had his own and they got purchased by a studio I can't remember the name of but when that studio went out of business and auctioned their stuff off I was working at Howie Schwartz and he said go get them uh-huh. and we got them nice. so for the last year and a half I was in New York we had the actual Phil Spector EMT plates nice you could do no wrong I <laughs> uh, have no experience with the Abbey Road plugins uh... What do you use plate reverb on and what length for which instruments? Oh, well, on this I use it a whole bunch. But, I mean, I like it. I like it for vocals a lot um, and and guitars and things. I don't use it as on drums that often, mm-hmm. but I tend to like it. Um, and I'm usually staying within the, most of the time, in the one-second to three-second range. But a really big thing, whether you're using a real plate, fake plate, or anything else, is EQing the reverb to fit into your mix. Um, I can't think of a time in the last two decades where I've pulled up a reverb preset right. and thought, oh yeah, that blends perfect. I always have to go in One of the and best, EQ them. Yeah, out. the rolling off low mids on an EMT plate because you'll get, even if you're using it on the snare and you're getting kicked around bleed into the snare mic, mm-hmm. it builds up a thunderstorm exactly. rolling around to the bottom of the plate. Yeah. Just take it out. Yeah. And high frequencies too, again, like sizzle, yeah. The, yeah, the sizzle, like the sibilance. Yeah. You know, that's one thing that you hear a lot on amateur mixes. You know, a very bright, sibilant vocal, especially with a lot of like sort of new, cheaper condensers that accentuate that. Mm-hmm. And then they go and hit a reverb, and so it's like, which just sounds so not pro. You can like it or not, but one of the things you can do is just go cut the high end off your reverb, and all of a sudden you can have that brighter, more forward vocal without as much of that uh, long sizzle tail. Um, something uh, uh, Back in the day, I used to see a lot of my uh, colleagues doing uh, different reverb for every instrument in the mix. Mm-hmm. And I always thought a lot of it was because they could. Uh-huh. Because, um, you know, AMS had just come out with a great sounding box. Great plates were still great plates. So you'd have a studio with 
real room reverbs, actual live chambers, yep. some plates, um, an AMS, and maybe the EMT robot R2D2 mm -hmm. thing. And these guys would spend incredible amounts of time setting up different reverb for each of the things. And I always thought, why? Mm -hmm. The band would have been in the same space. Yeah. So unless you're using a reverb for an effect on a lead guitar or yeah. something, why would you set up you know, a mid-size room with no top end for the drums, but then put the guitar in a concert hall mm -hmm. and, and the vocal, you know, through two and a half seconds of plate. I yeah. never understood that. Yeah, I usually don't use, it's pretty rare I use more than two. Yeah. And I think that just developed with techniques where we didn't have the money for a bunch of reverbs. So, but yeah, usually it's it's about two reverbs max, except yeah, for those special make, effect kind of things. Makes sense to me. It's, and the great thing is a lot of reverbs, a lot of really good plugins are going to be really DSP intensive. So, you know, they'll eat up a lot of processing power. So, good point. You know, so if you want, you can, you know, pull up your most DSP hungry reverb, if that's one you love, and if you use one or two instances of it, uh, you're not going to have to worry about eating up all your processing power. Uh, will you print reverb just for economy of processing power um, um, if you find something that you know you love? If I will, I mean, I. In my studio, I've got a mix of everything from outboard springs and digital reverbs and things like that. Um, but absolutely, if I'm running into some situation where there's something, you know, whether it's reverb or something else, sometimes virtual instruments will just mm -hmm. really be DSP hogs. So, you know, I'll print that to a new track and then deactivate the virtual instrument track and just mix off of the audio track. Does anybody make, a, what was the classic spring reverb in the gold colored tubes that were about this big back in the mid to late 70s? Oh. Remember those, it was a spring floating in oil inside of a tube. Oh, Orban? Not, yeah. I, I don't know, whoever made <laughs> <Yeah>. it. Uh, <laughs> They sounded really bad on a lot of stuff and incredibly good on a few yeah. things. Um, okay, a couple more questions and we're done, believe Ooh, it I not. need transient designer in my life. On that tip, if you're into transient designer type stuff, forgive me if you don't know what that is, but also look at the Elysia envelope, which is uh, more tweakable in some really, really cool ways. Uh, if you understand transient designers, you'll get what that means. I have no reverb idea. as an inserter send, um, unless it's a special effect, almost always as a send. So if I want to put reverb on a voice or something like that, I want to send that audio track off a bus into some aux input or console track with the reverb there. And the big reason for that is this allows me to send multiple instruments to that same, same reverb thing. Yeah. and allows me to EQ that because I may do radical EQ, almost always cuts in my reverb. Yeah. Uh, that would actually hurt the quality of the voice or something like that. So, in, except for again rare, rare special effect things, I'm almost always sending. Uh, yeah, I don't think reverbs. I ever didn't use a send. Yeah, and everything's got so many sends now. It's yeah, not like that's the way a... you and I came up on systems where that's always how it worked. But yeah, yeah. Um, okay, more streaming up. Sorry. Question. Uh, need to check out Abbey Road reverbs. Okay. Questions, where'd you go? So, and then vocal tips, question mark. Not quite sure what that question is. Uh, I guess any general vocal tips uh, for I mean, recording vocals? Uh, here's an actual question. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> yeah, how do you get over the problem of not knowing what you don't know? Um, 
I will let you know when I get there. Um, the thing is, we're hopefully you will always be at that stage where you don't know what you don't know. I've never met anybody who knows yeah. everything. Yeah, I've met a few who think they do, but I've never met anyone who does. Um, but really, you just you just keep working and trying to learn new stuff. So it's a combination of always trying to explore and learn new stuff, but also learning enough that you have a good toolkit that you can show up and get the job done. Yeah. So, you know, that's one thing like, you know, even like in Pro Tools, I've been using Pro Tools since version 1.0, literally the day it hit. Wow. I started using it. Um, I know, feel like I know like 15% of it. <laughs> and there's tons of stuff I can learn one day and should learn. But I also know enough that I can show up at work in the morning, fire up my system, and get music done. It's fine. Somebody the other day on uh, our forum was talking about, oh, I never get the free light version of this or the free light version of that. And I'm thinking, why not? I would always mm -hmm. get the free light version and master it until mm -hmm. the point where you find that you've exceeded what it can do. There's no reason to have something that's got, like Microsoft Word. I've always had it and I'm used to it, but uh -huh. it does so much more than yeah. I'll ever do in my lifetime yep. that I should just have used uh, whatever it is, the, the version that comes free with my laptop. Somebody says, what's the typical EQ changes for Valhalla Plate? I'll just answer, answer that generically. Uh, typical EQ changes for reverb. Uh, I'm virtually always cutting off all of the low end of a reverb. I'm mm -hmm. almost always cutting all the highs, sometimes, you know, low pass filtering, which is means cutting off the high end, you know, maybe all the way down to as far as like 2K. Mm -hmm. And then really looking for where the low mids build up. And that frequency range is going to be di different depending on whether there's lots of guitars, pianos, synths, male voice, female voice. So really, I'm really chopping the top and the bottom off and then going around in the middle, finding out where it's building up too much. Yeah. And yeah, most 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 of the time, if your reverb just sounds amazingly gorgeous by itself in a denser rock or pop thing, this is uh, uh, Native Instruments. Is there a budget alternative? I think this question actually came in before the show, so we should answer that one. Um, um uh, I mean, I've got a bunch of the IK multimedia stuff. Um, uh, I don't consider myself to be a master of virtual instruments for film score and things like that. I'm I'm more using those things and kind of rock and pop going for cool funky sounds right but uh you know the, the with the ik multimedia stuff they had some big sale and i bought tons of it and now there's more sounds than i'll ever get through <laughs> um but the cool thing hopefully you're going to the rally and there's a whole bunch of people i know will be there who are really good at this stuff and have lots of strong opinions um, that's a great question to ask, by the way, in the bar at night and at the mentor launch, because you're bound to get two or three people that will rotate around your tables that will have uh, opinions. And you know what? Look for consensus. The, don't go with the strongest opinion. Go with the most commonly heard opinion, and you'll probably be in the ballpark. Uh, Budget preamp uh, interface. I'm a big fan of the Apogee stuff. Um, the Apogee Duet is the Duet 2 uh, is, again, what I carry around the world with me to do remote recording. It's an I Somebody said to me when they found out Apogee was coming to the rally, and I said, you know, um, you can buy a Chevy, you can buy a BMW, or you can buy a Ferrari. Yeah. Um, chances are you'll never drive the Fer have the, the place to drive the Ferrari like it should be yeah. driven. But you will have places to drive the BMW, and that's what Apogee is. Everything in their line is like a BMW. Yeah, it, it's but... It's really... 
but also keeping in mind that imagine a BMW that was 95% as fast as the Ferrari and fun to drive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's and, what I'm saying is there's a, a point of diminishing return. Yeah. I mean, the good thing is, you know, there's a few real low end interfaces that, you know, don't advise you against getting like an $89 interface. But even once you get into spending a few hundred bucks, the good news is digital technology has come up that it's all pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. And then once you start getting up into that range of like Apogee, Lavery, Benchmark, you know, I've got my preferences, but they're all pretty similar. And uh, and I love Apogee because, again, I, I think it sounds great. I've never had one go down on me uh, in a way. And, you know, and the price point is great. And again, I, it's like a few hundred bucks for a channel. For a, like yeah. the one is like three fifty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's the duet like? Six like, hundred. Yeah, and they just introduced a whole new line. Yeah. Um, of stuff that I haven't used yet, so I don't have hands-on experience. And they will and, be at the road rally. And yeah. Guess what? I'm gonna put them in the room where you guys line up in the zigzag line before you register, so you'll have a chance to listen to this stuff and wear headphones. And yeah, play but the Apogee stuff's cool because it's like super high-quality stuff at reasonable prices, and it's one of those things. If you're up into their stuff. You never have to worry about is my is, is this aspect of my gear holding me back? Right. It will never ever be an issue uh, with them. And you could again you could decide you like a feature set of something else different, or even if you start mastering at a high level, you know I have multiple different you know converters I can flip through the mastering stage. Right. But it's never ever an issue. And unless you're experienced enough to uh, going back to the Ferrari analogy, unless you're experienced enough to enjoy the that extra 10% that you get with the very expensive esoteric stuff, it's a waste of money. <laughs> Probably can't hear it yet. <laughs> um, okay, Ooh, we're three minutes over. Shoot. Ooh. All right. So with that, we're going to wrap up today's show. Um, and how, you're, are you doing one or two classes? I'm doing two classes. What I'm days doing, are they on? Um, Sunday morning, and is it Saturday morning also? I think, yeah, 9 a.m. Sunday and Saturday. Oh, they also, can find you online. We have everything about yeah, the road rally. I'm doing, I'm doing mentor there. lunch twice. I'm wow. Doing, I think I'm doing one-on-one -on -one mentoring, and I'm doing the production bar. Nice. That's a, the Just for those of you who are new to the road rally, we have it's basically free one-to-one -one mentoring at night where you can just walk up get in a line and uh, sit with this gentleman and uh, get 15 minutes of it, his advice my advice though is even for the mentor launch for your one-to-one -one session or going to the production bar have your questions written down in advance because then if you don't you're going to walk away going crap why didn't i ask him this yeah and i'll have a table in the bookseller's room and I always just enjoy getting to chat with members and answer questions anytime Great. Well, uh, we will see you on November 3rd. Or the, well, the, the registration is on the 3rd. The rally kind of starts on the 4th, although the open mic is on the 3rd. So uh, see you in about 10 days. Awesome. See you guys in about 10 days. There Thanks, will not be a taxi TV next week. Uh, and Ronan, always great to have you here. The time flies. We love being geeks. See you guys. We will be doing Taxi TV the Monday directly after the road ride. So see you then. Bye-bye.